The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. On the line now, we've got Tom Rowe, who is the independent candidate running for Corangamite. Uh, Tom, good morning. Thanks for being on the program. Morning, Mitchell. Again, great to be back on the program. But here I am sitting in my car, lockdown 6.3 or wherever it is, heading for regrettably, I think, perpetual lockdown. But it's OK, because even though we're not in a race, our great visionary Prime Minister Scott Morrison has secured a million Pfizer doses from Poland of all places, a country that has about, I think it's one third of our GDP per capita. And at the same time, we've got this travesty, this, this terrible tragedy in Afghanistan with the takeover of that country by the Taliban and 20 years of conflict and war. And I think a question was put to the Prime Minister, has the Taliban won? And I think uh, the better question was, uh, has Afghanistan lost? Because I don't think it's about winning at all. Everyone loses out of this. Terrible. Well, I was uh, watching the BBC last night and when they said that the Taliban had reached uh, Kabul and were closing in from all sides, and this is after them taking every other Afghan city, and it suggests that there wasn't a lot of resistance against the Taliban in Kabul, and the government was having conversations around the transition of power. Uh, That is a human rights tragedy in the making, I think. Terrible. And I think what the president, the current president has already left, said he wanted to avoid bloodshed, but made no announcement, fled the country along with some of his closest uh, associates. And I think the previous uh, president has stepped up to try to negotiate a, a transition. And I think even Scott Morrison this morning was talking about, or in the Porter reported in the Financial Review this morning about, you know, talking through detailed plans about how we're going to try to help the poor Afghanis that were helping us and have been left there. But at the same time, as far as I understand, the uh, the uh, international airport's already been taken over and controlled by the Taliban. All commercial flights have come to a stop. There are some military flights coming in and out. But this all seems way after the fact. And where was all the planning that was, should have been going into this to... Uh, to support those you know, incredibly hard-working um, Afghanis that have taken huge risk in supporting what we've tried to achieve and, and bluntly have failed. And I know Terrible. people here in Geelong from the Afghan community and they'll be, of course, very concerned about what's going on over there and they'll have connections back over there. Um, it's very, very worrying and uh, who knows where things will end up. There was something else I heard that Australia apparently is the first Western nation in the world to say that we're pulling out of our, our embassies, pulling out of Kabul. I just, mm. I just, I just, terrible. Now, on the vaccine issue of it coming over from Poland, did I read correctly that all of those uh, doses are being sent straight to Sydney? No, I think it's about 50 50. A, a, a big proportion's going to Sydney. I think Dan Andrews, again, to be fair to him as well, yesterday was talking about recognising that. Sydney slash New South Wales needed uh, more of the Pfizer vaccine. I mean, you can have another discussion about all the AstraZeneca that's out there and why aren't we using all of, you know, quite frankly, copious amounts of AZ that's available. But anyway, I think Dan Andrews was acknowledging that uh, for the politics and, you know, resistance, vaccine resistance that's out there, that uh, a significant part of that Pfizer was going to New South Wales, Sydney. But I didn't think it was 100%. I thought it was maybe disproportionately 50% or thereabouts, but there'd still be more. But it's impossible to work out really what's going on because you've got the the usual stockpiles being replenished and built up by the supplies coming in that we've already contracted, and then you've got this additional supply. So I think, you know, lots of hand-waving and politics, and it's a great, you know, part of the political narrative about what Scott Morrison is now doing. Uh, to try to you know stem this terrible problem we've got 
certainly centred in New South Wales, Sydney, but spreading everywhere. I mean, again, reports this morning, I think you were just talking to the latest case releases for Victoria, and one of the headlines I think I just saw in the Geelong Advertiser, uh, months in lockdown for Victoria coming up. Now, no-one wants that. I certainly don't want that, but I fear greatly that I don't think any jurisdiction in the world has controlled Delta once it's out. So why are we going to be any different? Well, I was checking uh, what we went through in Victoria last year. So it was around late July, about July the 30th, that we had over 700 new cases in a day. And this is not the Delta variant. Um, but then uh, when did Melbourne actually get released from the toughest lockdown restrictions and when were they allowed back into regional Victoria? November the 9th. So you've had from late July through till November yeah. where they've been in lockdown. So that suggests to me, and this is with uh, without the Delta strains, the Delta strain, if anything, makes it even worse. This suggests to me that New South Wales, if they have aggressive lockdown restrictions now, would be in it for the rest of the year on those projections. Absolutely. I think Gladys Berejiklian and the rest of her cabinet know that. I suspect there's been enormous tension within their cabinet division and differing views about how they should tackle this. And I think we we see this coming out in her narrative, why people are screaming at her saying you're not locking up hard enough. But I think she's trying to deal with a whole lot of conflicting forces within her government about how they deal with this and also the reality of Delta. People are simply saying you can't you can't control it in the way we've done with the earlier variants. Uh, don't bother trying. We need to find a different pathway. And I think in a way she's got that different pathway. In fact, I'm hoping she'll be able to lead this country out of it. I know everyone's piling on at the moment and saying, you do this, we'll hold up the, the, the release and, and, and sort of setting aside lockdowns uh, as we get through our vaccination program. I don't think that's the case at all. I think, and this goes back to some of the policy discussions you and I have had over years, over the last few years, and particularly leading into my announcement to run as an independent candidate for Karangamite, federalism and how our federation works in this sort of competitive framework, which is what's meant to happen, is that Gladys does something different and it leads, hopefully, others to see what has to be done in dealing with this Delta variant reality. You can't control it. You can't stop it uh, in the way we'd like to. Yes, you can suppress it, which is what's going on right now, but we've just got to get through vaccinations to get uh, community immunity up as high as we can and then begin to learn to live with it and all the consequences that come from it. So, you know, really challenging what we've got going through our communities at the moment. Very, very frustrating destruction of small business everywhere, but uh, equally having to deal with our reality and circumstances as they stand today. And I think Gladys, despite the problems there are in Sydney and New South Wales, will at the end of the day be seen to be leading us out of it because she'll be the bravest uh, and trying to show this is how we have to live with this disaster that before us. So it's very challenging indeed, Mitchell. Does each lockdown become less effective simply because of the issues around compliance, which I mentioned at the start of the program, but it seems like now people in metropolitan Melbourne are willing to be um, a bit more relaxed about some of the restrictions, to play fast and loose with the rules, to push the envelope, uh, whereas I know in the first lockdown it seemed like everyone was on board and everyone was committing to stay at home, but I think now people have said, well, we've just had enough, so we're almost doing our own thing. Of course, community exhaustion was always going to reach a, a point where you'd start to see fragmentation and breakdown and control orders. Now, you might say from the start, Sydney was that way inclined, and this is what I, what I would argue, that Sydney, New South Wales, particularly Sydney people, are a bit different to the way we think operate in Victoria. And that's fine. You want diversity and differences. And we see this to a degree playing out in the western suburbs of Sydney that never really went through the hard lockdown, of course, that we went through. And people will say, well, why can Victoria go through hard lockdown, particularly Melbourne and uh, parts of 
you know, Geelong as well. Um, why can't Sydney go through the same thing? Um, and that's true, but at the same time, they're different. But also, we've just got community everywhere that's been through 18 months plus of this disaster and uh, people become exhausted. But so we had a journey to go through. And bearing in mind, we started the story by saying, flatten the curve. And somehow, without any political discussion, we went to complete elimination and suppression. Uh, and we're going to have to go back to this sort of suppression, flatten the curve and dealing and living with, with um, COVID. Uh, this will be very, very challenging and different jurisdictions are going to do different things. But you have to have choice and diversity out there. And consequence, Mitchell and New South Wales are a living, breathing example of that. But equally, as New South Wales begins to open up and they will relax, you know, dealing with their politics there, they'll relax their controls gradually as they approach you know 50 percent first dose and, and so on and then hopefully moving to ultimately our target of 70 percent double dose for the eligible adult population um uh they will progressively take us through this journey um and the other states i suspect will have to follow because going back to your earlier question there's community resistance everywhere we're just over this and we need a different path now talking about your policies i know that libby coker says a lot that her electorate cares a lot about the issue of climate change, and I've got a feeling that that's going to be one of the big battle lines that will be drawn between Libby Coker, Stephanie Asher, and yourself. So uh, it might be a good idea for you to uh, tell people, I suppose, about what your climate policies or environmental policies are, and I suppose also that comes in the wake of this IPCC report which came out, which I have to say the messaging around the IPCC report was very similar to the last uh, IPCC assessment report that came out, which was, yes, it's bad and also we have a limited time to do something well environmental policies and emission control reduction and the like have been a political graveyard for a long long time mitchell and i don't think it's going to be any different in influencing the policies out of the two major parties leading to the upcoming federal election everyone's very scared of what this means and the lots of waffle words and hand waving and you saw this in part on Q&A last week with Matt Canavan um, and the, and the Labor uh, counterparty as well. But when it comes to specifics, everybody tries to avoid it. And I think we'll see this playing out with Libby Coker and Stephanie Asher as well, because they'll be trapped by their um, uh, party uh, policy positions. And even though there'll be the want to try perhaps to talk to her a bit further and certainly trying to feed this sort of, you know, as I said, to this sort of green tinge type approach to win voters through Karangamai, particularly on the Bellarine, where I think there's greater sensitivity to it. I think when it comes down to detailed specifics, it's going to be really challenging. Now, to be fair to all, I do understand that. We've got so many competing interests out there. You know, we've got obviously emission reduction want and trying to deal with all the things that the IPCC report spoke to just by way of example from last week. Obviously, there's been a long journey to get to that point. But also all the other competing issues as well. We've got weighting of our current energy generation system. And I keep a close look on the national energy market and how our power is being generated, particularly sort of through the early um, evening phase in this winter period. And still today we see black coal, um, uh, brown coal, uh, gas at times being responsible for north of 80% of all generation through the national electricity market. If you come back to Victoria, we don't have black coal, but we've all got brown coal and we get the same sort of proportions. And when it's no sun, obviously there's no solar, you've got no wind generation because the wind's quieter perhaps at a nighttime environment, but huge demand on our 
uh, electrical grid system peaking, I don't know, 20 gigawatts of power demand, it all has to come back to black coal, brown coal and, and, and gas. And so how you deal with this migration of uh, waiting in fossil fuel uh, electricity generation is really problematic. And it's great you can say we've got to do all these things, but actually making it happen, not so easy. We've got coal jobs and coal export and, and trade weighted exposed industries. Uh, we've got, you know, the global community to try to deal with treaty obligations. And how do we make room for developing countries to allow them to use, um, you know, emission intensive uh, uh, electricity generation the way that we have? Why do we get to enjoy it, but they don't? Um, so incredibly difficult to try to deal with all of these competing um, uh, interests. In, in back to coal exports alone, we just can't ignore this reality. I think of the latest numbers that I've seen, that's 18, 19, that's early 20, $60 billion of our exports is about iron ore, but very closely behind that, almost at the same level, are coal exports. And then you jump down to the likes of, I think it's education and gas, and that's about $30 billion uh, each. But $60 billion iron ore, $60 billion circa for coal, you just can't eliminate that entire industry uh, overnight. It's going to take many, many years. So coming down to what I'm going to try to talk to in, in particular policy, it's all very well talking to the issues, but what do you do about it? And I've just gone around in circles, and I've come back to where we, I think we started. Uh, and, and it's essentially what the... Um, uh, the um, CEDA, uh, as a, um, which I think is the Committee of um, uh, Economic Development in Australia, has spoken to back in around 2009 that the only way to cut through this, and many other economists talk to this as well, is to come back to some sort of carbon uh, uh, tax. There's just no other way around it. Now, I know we get a lot of focus about carbon. It's not just about carbon. We've got you know, greenhouse emissions, so that's carbon dioxide. We've got methane, I think nitrous oxides and, and some you know, fluorocarbons and the like that are out there. So we've got to sort of talk to this general emissions control. Um, but I don't, I've looked through the emissions trading schemes and all the things that we've gone through over the last, what's it, 11, 12, 13 years. And I just come back to this, the, you know, the, the, the hard reality that the only way to make a difference, to influence um, the way we uh, buy our electricity in the way we consume carbon, putting a price to it and a market, market signal and giving our business community some sort of um, uh, um, sort of framework in which to operate and to get confidence to invest is to come back to a carbon consumption tax. And I'm going to say that it has to come back to a personal carbon consumption tax because at the end of the day, businesses don't consume carbon or emit carbon. We do as people. They're all businesses about producing product for people. So I'm going to run a policy position uh, that goes back to where we all started. And I think the two other major parties just will not go there because I don't have the guts and the spine to deal with this. The only way to do this properly and to deal with, uh, you know, the want out there and to get back to net emissions, you know, net zero emissions by 2050, which I don't think is brave enough as it is anyway. Is that your target, net zero by 2050? Well, no, I don't think that's sufficient, Mitchell. I think we've got to go negative. Um, and this comes back to not only um, controlling gross emissions, getting to net zero emissions, but also beginning to take carbon out. Now, as a global community, you might get back to net zero by 2050, but we've done a lot of damage along the way, and we're going to have to keep doing some damage along the way. There's no other way around this. But we've got to create um, 
uh, and uh, policy positions and ultimately a physical endeavour to not only get back to net zero emissions, we want to deal with our gross and start pulling carbon out of the system. And we need to create technologies that really don't exist at the moment or technologies that will be vastly cheaper than we have today because we need to make room for developing countries, all right? So I don't think actually the 2050 target is ambitious enough. Now, of course, I'm acutely conscious of how this impacts upon our overall economy, whether that's big business, small business, jobs for our children, the rest. So none of this is easy. So you have to start at a point, and I do think we need to come back to a personal consumption tax on, 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 on emissions, and I would propose to run that through our GST system so that our GST system would evolve between a baseline component and a component that's set around uh, the uh, costing the personal consumption of carbon or global you know, greenhouse emissions. Um, and And... And this, I think, will be the fairest and most efficient way of getting to these particular, trying to achieve these goals of reducing not only net emissions, but also gross emissions. And so whilst I wouldn't propose for a moment right now to increase our overall tax burden, we have to begin to weight it differently um, so that we begin to price our, our emissions. And it comes down to personal consumption, not business consumption. So just like the GST, businesses receive their input tax credits as they go along and ultimately the end consumer of the product in Australia pays the tax. Um, of course, this wouldn't impact upon our trade-exposed industries, all right? So if you send goods overseas and that can, the carbon gets consumed in another jurisdiction, that's up to that jurisdiction to deal with that consumption. So we're not exposing our exports to that burden and equally those things that are import into the country, they also would have to have the same um, um, carbon, personal carbon consumption tax or emissions con consumption tax placed upon it. So everybody's playing from the same playing field within our Australian jurisdiction. All right. And then, but you need to wrap that. And this is the thing that Josh Frydenberg quite fairly tried to deal with before his idea was quashed by politics within the Liberal Party as well as the National Party. Uh, and that is the, uh, the national energy guarantee arrangements because we can't move into an environment where we're just penalising carbon-intensive industries without rewarding those bodies that produce both lower carbon as well as creating baseload stability to our energy grid. And also, thirdly, we need to reward... Um, uh, and this comes back to carbon accounting because I think it's fraught with issue and uh, the way we account for carbon reduction. We need to provide credit to those um, technologies that will emerge that will provide stable carbon capture. And you can talk about planting of trees, and that's wonderful, and we need to do a whole lot more of that to try to capture carbon. But that's very different to locking out carbon, for example, in minerals, which is much more expensive and will need a lot more technology development to do just that. So we need to reward stability of carbon capture and we need to reward providing baseline stable energy generation uh, in addition to pricing our carbon. And these three things working together, I think, will provide us a viable pathway to getting and, and trying to meet these targets. So these are the sort of specific policy initiatives that I want to try to address as we move through the uh, the election campaign. I don't think the two major parties will touch this. I don't think they have the guts and spine to deal with it. And unfortunately, if you go follow their particular line, we'll be having the same discussion in three years' time, Mitchell, and we'll keep going. Uh, we'll just see no proper evolution of this. You can't do this with technology alone. We've got to have industry on board with this, and we need to put a price to our emissions generation.
And now, do I take it from what you're saying, because the big debate about a carbon tax or a carbon price in the past has been, do you have a fixed price or do you have a floating price market mechanism? Do I take it that you prefer a fixed price? No, I think it has, it'll, it'll be certainly floating. And you start on a level and you test the market, all right? And then you will build it up or reduce it. I mean, we, we may get to a point along our journey where we will peak perhaps in 15 years' time as we're allowing industry to run with us. And then as we start to succeed in pulling it back, you can start to reweight this sort of emissions consumption tax run through our GST system that I was that I was talking to. But I'm not proposing at all that our overall tax take should increase through this. So this is just about reweighting our GST uh, arrangements at the moment because I don't for a moment want to give Canberra more of our tax money to have it wasted. Even Matt Canavan spoke about that on Q&A last week. He said, don't give us more money. Uh, you know, don't give us because we'll just go and blow it in Canberra. And I, I give full credit to Max, uh, Matt Canavan. I mean, sometimes he says a few loopy things, but he has a lot of sensible things to say as well, and a lot of honesty in what he says. So I, for right now, no more tax to Canberra. We can have an argument about our proportion of tax to GDP, which is well below the OECD average. And so there's an issue there about how we fund our social infrastructure, our community infrastructure, hard road, rail infrastructure. But um, uh, I don't want to go there in this particular policy initiative because I think that will disturb the discussion. It has to be pure just to reweighting uh, our current tax arrangements and rewarding things that are less carbon intensive or emissions intensive and penalising those that are more carbon intensive. But you can weight it in. So you graduate it over time and look to see how the market responds rather than having something that's simply fixed. I think that's uh, unnecessary and probably won't give us the sort of flexibility that we need. Well, that's a very clear policy statement. Thank you very much for being on the program once again, and we'll talk to you again next month. Always a pleasure, Mitchell. Thank you. Thank you, Tom Rowe, with us there, independent candidate for Corangamite. The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11. Or search for Mitchell's Front Page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or wherever you get your podcasts.